our sermon this morning is on Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. Turn there in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one out of the pew in front of you or behind you. You can use your phone, look on the screen here. Uh, we're going to work through, uh, this is everyone's favorite topic this morning, money. So we're going to talk about money uh, for the next few minutes. Wealth, poverty, generosity, how to honor God with your money, which is, uh, you know, which is not irrelevant for anyone of any age, right? It doesn't matter if you're 8, 9, 10, 11 years old or if you're 80, 90 years old. Uh, chances are you have or you deal in some capacity with, with money. Uh, money is one of those topics in sermons that tends to elicit similar reactions, right? Um, you know, you talk about prayer and everyone leaves feeling guilty because they feel like they don't pray enough. Uh, talk about evangelism, everyone leaves feeling guilty. They feel like they don't share the, the gospel enough and there's this weight on their shoulders. Money can kind of be like that. Right? You can kind of leave a sermon on money thinking, I don't, I don't make enough money and therefore I'm not able to give enough money and I feel bad about it. Or uh, I make too much money and I don't give enough uh, based on what I make and so I feel bad about that. So you can elicit guilt or shame. Maybe a more common response that I uh, have, have kind of seen with people in America is not one of guilt or shame, but just uh, skepticism. Right, You hear a pastor uh, talking about money and it's not, oh man, I feel bad that I should be giving more money than I am, but it's like, give me a break, right? Who does this guy, who does this guy think he is? It's, you know, my money, I earned it. Who does he to tell me what I should do with my money? Or it's like, you know, for that, like he's biased, right? He, like he wants me to give money, but his church is the thing that he's telling me to give money to. It's like, it's like a car salesman saying that you should buy a bigger, fancier car, right? You kind of take it with a grain of salt because there might be some, some self-interest in it. So um, a lot of us kind of approach money or sermons about money or people teaching us about money with some semblance of skepticism or, you know, reticence. I'm not sure what this is. And frankly, you know, full disclosure, a lot of sermons that you'll hear from preachers in America are... Like a lot of it is a scam. A lot of it is a ripoff. There are a lot of preachers, entire theological streams that basically say, just give us your money so that God will give you prosperity and health and, and wealth. So a lot of us come into sermons on money thinking preachers are con men, preachers are scam artists. There's also the reality that our culture uh, has kind of pinpointed a handful of different things and basically said these issues, these subjects are taboo. You don't talk about them. There's rules of etiquette, right? You go to a party, you don't talk about religion or politics. That's considered, uh, you know, uncouth, right? If you're interacting with a person, you don't talk about sex or, or money, right? You don't ask them about their budget. Those things are private. They're personal. It's rude. So if you're a pastor like me who practices expositional church, expositional preaching like our church does, you come to a text like this, you're in a little bit of a pickle. Because, right, because, uh, you know, even though money's not our favorite topic, uh, and even though people tend to be skeptical when, when pastors talk about money, here it is. It's in the text. We can't avoid it. So a, a good cultural analyst knows to never, ever talk about money but a faithful expositional preacher knows that you can't avoid talking about money. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a catch-22. But uh, we're going to talk about money this morning. We're going to read this, this little short text, four verses, 
Uh, and then we're going to think about what it says, what, what God is speaking to us, uh, specifically about money, wealth, poverty, generosity, and, and the like. So I'm going to read it and then pray, and then we'll get to, get to work. It says, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box and the poor widow into two small copper coins. Or, yeah, put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would give us a spirit of humility as we sit under the authority of your word this morning, myself included. Lord, we pray that, you know, we, Jesus, we, we swim in the waters of individualism and consumerism and autonomy all week long. And so texts like this can be hard to hear, hard to receive, hard to submit to myself included. And so we pray that you would give us humility to listen and hear and receive. Not what Ben says, but what the Holy Spirit uh, is speaking to us through this passage. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, verse 1. Jesus looked up and he saw rich people putting their gifts into the offering box. Saw the poor woman putting in two small copper coins. Before we kind of look at the particular situation here, it's helpful just to understand, um, you know, just take a quick survey of how people in the ancient world understood wealth and poverty so that we can kind of assign meaning to Jesus' comments uh, about it. The prevailing thought in the first century was that uh, wealth and riches and money were a sign of, of favor from God and, and blessing from God. There are, right, if you're, if you're living in Israel in the first century, there are two things that your family needs, like essential, you need them in order to survive, and that's children and rain. Children and rain, right? Uh, Israel is an agrarian society. Most of their resources came from planting and harvesting crops. You rely heavily on rain. And every family needs children because of the way their society was set up, the way that property rights were set up. You need someone to pass your property onto when you die. The way that their you know, elderly people were dependent. You need someone to take care of you in your old age. Uh, you need people, you need employees when your kids you know, get of age that can help you with the planting and harvesting. You need children and you need uh, rain. Without those two things, your family, without, without rain, you die in, in a matter of months. Without children, your family would die in a matter of years or, or decades. And the common denominator between children and rain is that you can't manufacture them on your own. You need God to provide them, right? It doesn't matter how competent of a farmer you are, how you know, creative and diligent and innovative and how much you outwork everyone else. If God doesn't bring rain, your harvest is going to suffer, your family is going to suffer. It doesn't matter how, you know, in terms of having kids, it doesn't matter how, how young you get married or how active of a married couple you are. If God doesn't give you the gift of new life, you're not going to get pregnant and have kids. So the idea with those two kind of main... And so all of the other religions around them, they had gods devoted to those two things. To, to children and fertility and to rain. And they would like worship the, the gods and they would see those things as kind of, I mean, literally blessings raining down from 
uh, from their false gods. But I mean, that, that kind of trickled into to Israel. And so they, they you know, would, would hope and pray for God to give them children and reign. And if God did, that was seen as a sign of, of blessing, right? You, you could and should, and you had a responsibility to do everything that you can to position yourself to receive these blessings from God. But ultimately, uh, you are dependent on God giving those blessings to you. So the, just the, the prevailing notion was if you're rich, if you have a lot of, you know, if you have a big family or a lot of resources and a lot of wealth, it's because you're godly and faithful and upright and God is smiling on you. If you're poor, sick, disabled, it's because you did something wrong or your parents did sorry, some, someone somewhere did something wrong that you are being punished for. That was the prevailing thought. It's wrong. But that was the, it's absolutely wrong, but it's the prevailing thought in the first century. You look at, look at the book of Job. We have a, a few Bible verses we're just going to work uh, through. Um, yeah, you look at the book of Job. Job's friends and his counselors came to him and spoke with him. They were foolish. They, they were wrong. Gee, God rebuked them at the end of the book of Job. But you can kind of see the spirit of the age coming through their words, right? Uh, Job is suffering deeply and tremendously, and they're just assuming it's because of his sin. Who, who that was innocent, Job, ever perished like this? Right? Were there ever the upright that were cut off like you have been? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble uh, reap the same. Right? Right? God, God blesses good people and he curses bad people. Same thing in, verse eight, in chapter 18. Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out and the flame of his fire does not shine. A trap seizes him. A snare lays hold of him. A rope is hidden for him. A trap in the path. Terrors frighten him on every side and chase him at his heels. His strength is famished and calamity is ready for his suffering, stumbling. So, so you know, the, the Job's counselors say that the, the rule of the universe is that uh, if you're suffering, there must be some sin as to why it would have happened to you. People in Jesus' day thought the same thing in John 9, right? They come across a blind man and they say, Rabbi, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents that he was born blind? That was the prevailing thought. And again, just like God corrected and rebuked Job's friends and counselors in the end of um, the book of Job, Jesus corrects these, uh, these people in the very next verse. He says, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So it's not necessarily that, that you know, wealth is not necessarily a sign of favor from God. Poverty or, or disability is not necessarily a curse from God. God has his own purposes that he's working out unbeknownst to you on a different kind of level than you're able to, to think on. But that was, that was, that was the, the, the water that we're swimming in. That's the water that these people that Jesus is interacting with are swimming in. Is That's kind of how they, they think. And they thought it because that had kind of been... You know, that had been reinforced for, I mean, ever since the Old Testament, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, these were wealthy, rich people. They had tons of descendants and tons of resources. Joseph rose to prominence in Egypt and he was rich, right? After Israel left Egypt and took the promised land, uh, it was led by David, who was rich. His son Solomon was ridiculously rich, right? Net worth in the trillions. Um, and so, so all of these heroes in the Old Testament were all rich. And so the prevailing thought was, if you're rich, it's because God loves you. It's because you're righteous. God loves you. God is blessing you. And the religious leaders in Jesus' day had every opportunity to correct this kind of faulty, defective theology, and they didn't. They stoked it. They, they you know, cultivated it. They, they, they exacerbated it. 
mean, we looked um, we looked a few weeks ago at Jesus cleansing the temple, and we saw that it was because they uh, the, the the wealthy religious leaders in Jesus' time had set up these schemes to rip people off. Right? They would they would sell uh, you know overpriced animals to poor people to offer as sacrifices. Um, they would exchange money for foreign people at exorbitant rates. They would kind of scare and bully people into, they would say, if you don't buy this stuff from us at these over, you know, at, at these like inflated prices, you will go to hell forever. The poor people are traveling from all over the country. They're being exploited and rich people and religious leaders are getting richer uh, from it. And then even worse uh, is uh, in Mark 7, we can kind of see uh, uh, some other schemes and some other tricks that the rich people would do. Uh, when they, So the rich religious leaders, their parents would come to them and say, hey, we're old, we raised you, we took care of you, we're young, now we're old and we need you to help us and take care of us. And they would say, I can't because I'm broke. They're like loaded, crazy rich from ripping off all of these people that would come to the temple to worship God. And then they would turn around to their parents and say, I'm broke because they would, they would declare all of their money that they had, that they had stolen from the people, and they would say, uh, this is devoted to God. This is in a special, like, temple treasury thing called Corbin that's devoted to God, and, and I can't touch it even if I wanted to. So it's, it, it, would be like, it would be like if a pastor today set up an offshore bank account to dodge taxes, and so he was embezzling money from his church, he was putting this money into this offshore bank account that's, that's owned by the church, but that he's the sole executor of, that he can kind of use as his slush fund to live an exorbitant life. And then when, if his family members or if people come to him that are poor and that need help, he can say, I wish I could help, but I, I, don't have, I have zero dollars to my name. But he has millions of dollars kind of tucked away in this uh, slush fund that's kind of embezzled through the, the church. And so the, the rich people at the time would kind of they kind of set this up to where they could, you know, when it was convenient to be rich because they want people to think that they're rich and smart and righteous and powerful and, and high and mighty, then they would wear really fancy clothes and, and you know, uh, jewelry and all this kind of stuff and walk around bragging about how rich they were. But it was convenient to be poor because people needed them to help them. Then they would say, I'm sorry, I wish I could help, but I can't because I am uh, poor. That's kind of the prevailing spirit, right? Was that, that uh, wealth and riches uh, mean that God is smiling on you, that you, God is pleased with you. This was stoked by the, the wealthy people, right? Kind of reminiscent of prosperity theology today. Although there are um, a lot of people today think just the opposite, right? So prosperity theology is absolutely pre- prevalent today and it's a problem. A lot of people kind of are... A lot of people react against prosperity theology into some sort of Christian poverty theology, right? They look at how much their house costs, look at how much their car costs, right? Think about people that are starving in third world countries and they just feel, you know, guilt and shame over every dollar that they have or dollar that they spend. Right? Entire movements of people decry corporate greed. Occupy Wall Street, right? One percenters, they're all, you know, crooks and, and jerks and that kind of thing. And the rea- so, so the reality is that unlike prosperity theology or unlike poverty theology, the Bible kind of has categories for rich people who are righteous and godly and rich people who are wicked and sinful. 
And the Bible has categories for poor people who are righteous and godly and poor people who are uh, wicked and sinful. The Bible doesn't place a moral value on how much you have. It places a moral value on what you do with what you have. Right? It places a moral value on the state of your heart as you do what you do with what you have. So again, right? rich, righteous people all throughout Scripture. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Job, Boaz, David, Solomon. Uh, Jesus was buried in a tomb after he died. It was owned by a rich guy named Joseph of Arimathea. Jesus' ministry. Jesus was an itinerant preacher. He traveled around preaching, and his ministry was funded by rich women. Right? Luke chapter 8 says that there were wealthy women who personally funded Jesus' ministry. The, the gospel that we're reading, the gospel of Luke was written to a guy named Theophilus. A lot of scholars think that Theophilus was a rich man who commissioned Luke. A, he funded Luke and Paul's missionary journeys, but then B, he commissioned Luke to write Luke and Acts so that it could kind of, a record could be, could be made. So, uh, there are a lot of rich people who are godly and righteous they may have a lot of money, but they're generous with a lot of money. They look to bless people and meet their needs. They, despite being rich, they intentionally refuse to live an excessive, uh, lavish lifestyle. They recognize that there are better uses for their money than gratifying every impulse that they have. They're humble. They recognize that the money that they have is not necessarily because they're better or smarter than anyone else. It's a gift from God. There are, there are rich people who are righteous and godly. There's also rich people who are wicked. In the Bible, right, we see these guys, right? The, the priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, King Herod, Roman government officials, right? People who get rich by stealing. They get rich by exploiting other people. They hoard their wealth. They refuse to be generous, even though they have more than they will ever need. They're prideful and self-exalting. They think very highly of themselves because of their wealth. I have all this because I'm superior to others. I'm smarter. I'm better. It's not God and His grace. It's me and my superiority and my, you know, competence. So there's righteous, rich people, and there are wicked, rich people. Same thing with poor people, right? There are poor people who are righteous. They have very, I mean, this, this, this uh, poor widow, right? They have very little, but they strive to be content with what they have. They strive to be generous with what they have. They don't resent people who have more than them. They care about others. They trust God. Mary, Jesus' parents, Jesus, right? Mary and Joseph were poor. And they were righteous. A lot of the people that Jesus serves and ministers to and teaches and heals, a lot of them were poor, and Jesus commends them for their faith. There's a handful of Proverbs that talk about uh, poverty and, and wealth. Proverbs 28 says, Better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. Let's hop back to that one. We won't get to the next one for a second. Yeah, it's just a category for... Poor people who are righteous and rich people who are uh, wicked. There's also poor people who are wicked, right? So it's, again, it's not like, it's like the four categories. So poor people who are wicked, right? They think, you know, because someone else has more than me, uh, that's not fair, that's unjust, that, you know, I am entitled to take from them uh, because they have more than, than me, right? Uh, don't Maybe they don't seek counsel on financial issues maybe they spend foolishly or they don't i mean there's there's any number of reasons why a person uh, might be uh, impoverished but the bottom line is there are certainly uh, wicked sinful habits or practices that could land you uh, not having 
uh, you know, the money that you need to, to live on. Proverbs speaks about this a lot. Twenty-eight, nineteen. Whoever works hard in his land will have plenty of bread, but whoever follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. Proverbs twenty-three. For the drunkard and the glutton will come poverty will come to poverty, and the and slumber will clothe them with rags. Proverbs thirteen. Poverty and disgrace will come to him who ignores instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is honored. So he's talking about. You know, spending money on on foolish things, uh, refusing to take counsel and advice from people who are wise and know more than you. And so, you know, whenever you read Proverbs, it's worth noting that uh, Proverbs are not these binding promises that are always true. They're these general maxims that are typically and, and generally true. But the prevailing, you know, idea seems to be that diligence and moderation often lead to having enough. Idleness, laziness, drunkenness, gluttony, pride often lead to poverty. So, the Bible denounces prosperity theology that all rich people are good and God wants you to be rich. It denounces poverty theology that all rich people are bad and God wants you to be poor. There's righteous rich people, wicked rich people, righteous poor people, wicked poor people. And the whole point of Luke uh, 21, 1-4 is that God is not impressed by how much money you have, nor is he disappointed or upset by how little money you have, because those aren't categories that God thinks in. They're categories the world thinks in, right? Which is why rich people would walk up very publicly, flaunt uh, all the money that they had, how much they could afford. There's all this pageantry. Look at me. Look at what I'm able to give. You should all feel indebted to me. Look at how righteous and wealthy I am. Right? People might be impressed with that, and the world might be impressed with that. Right? You get your, get your name in the bulletin in the local theater for being the gold-level diamond sponsor club or whatever it is. Give enough, you get your name on a hospital wing or something like that. But um, the world may be impressed by how much you give, but God is not necessarily pleased by how much you give. He's not concerned uh, with the amount that you can afford to give, which is why Jesus says in verse 3, Truly I tell you, this poor widow who gave two small copper coins together add up to about a penny, about one cent in American currency. This widow who put two small copper coins in, she has given more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. God is not as concerned with what you're able to give as he is with your heart. He's concerned with what's going on in your heart when you give. He's concerned that his people are practicing generosity that's loving and sacrificial and faithful and in proportion to what God has given us. He's concerned that our generosity comes out of a heart that's glad and cheerful and excited to give rather than one that is, um, you know, reluctant or done out of obligation. He cares about us being generous, meaningfully and sacrificially uh, generous. One elder put it this way. He said that God, uh, the world looks at how much we give God looks at how much we keep. The world looks at how much we give. God looks at how much we keep. Human beings, impressed by those who can give a lot, they want to cater to them and keep them happy so that they'll continue giving a lot. 
They despise those who give little or nothing because they're not worth my time. There's nothing in it for me. God looks at how much we keep, how much of a sacrifice we're willing to make to bless others and meet the needs of others. And God looks at whether or not our giving is born out of a heart that cares about others more than it cares about ourself and our money. That's Luke 21, right? Jesus is redefining our terms, redefining our categories about wealth and generosity and what God values in terms of stewardship and how that is often radically different from what the world values. Now, I want to take a few minutes and, you know, we read a text like this and it it leaves us with, we've got some pretty clear, specific, general principles about wealth, and but there, there are specifics about just specifics about how we apply this and what we how we respond to this that are maybe that are maybe worth exploring for a few minutes i wanted to kind of dive into a couple of them the first uh practical um application that i want to draw out of this is that we should give in such a way that god is pleased with us as opposed to giving uh specifically to ensure that the world is impressed by us give to please god and not the world. Pretty self-evident, but worth mentioning nevertheless, right? Rich people publicly put their gifts in. They want to be seen and celebrated. They want to secure some fringe benefits, be it financial or social uh, or psychological. It's not that the rich people are unwilling to give. It's that they're only willing to give if they can be seen and celebrated and made much of. And Jesus is saying, if you're going to give like that, you might as well not give at all. God, God would just as soon have you give nothing than he would to have you give uh, with a prideful heart to be seen and celebrated. Everyone look at me. Everyone think how awesome I am. He says elsewhere in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that you may be praised by others. Truly, I say, when you, uh, if you do that, you've received your reward. But when you give to the needy, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Because you know who sees what's done in secret? Your father sees what's done in secret and he will reward you. So give in such a way that it pleases God as opposed to impresses the, the world. I mean, right, the, the, the widow does the exact opposite. She has nothing. She has one cent and she, she gives it not because she thinks it's going to impress anyone. She knows, she knows that like, people would probably rather not even have that. The people counting the money are going to be like, that's, that's a rounding error. Like we, we would literally drop that on the floor and not even you know, go out of our way to go, to go and pick it up. Common sense would seem to say, right? Uh, those, that one, those two copper coins mean more to you than they mean to the people that you're giving them to, so don't even bother with giving them. And Jesus is saying, regardless of how small your gift is, whether it'll ever be noticed or appreciated, regardless of whether the world thinks it's a foolish, bad cost-benefit analysis, that gift is pleasing to God because it's willing, cheerful, selfless, it's done to bless others rather than to exalt myself. So give to please God and not the world. A second point of application is celebrate what God celebrates, right? Instead of celebrating what the world celebrates. It's very tempting to, you know, celebrate the, the rich, self-exalting people and to ignore or forget or despise the poor widow, right? It's very tempting to be impressed by people with 
you know, lots of money, right? They, whenever they give, it's on the, the big giant check. It looks like a surfboard, right? They can do a photo op, right? It's very tempting to be impressed by how much people give. And it's very difficult. It's very hard. It takes discipline to, to you know, uh, you know, look past that kind of giving and to celebrate the kinds of gifts that God cares about, the kinds of gifts that represent real, meaningful, deliberate, sacrificial generosity. Right? It's very easy to overlook a regular family who works hard over years and years to live within their means. Right? And they, they tithe, they give money to their local church, they support missionaries, they, they you know, love their, their neighbor, they attend and give. And there's nothing flashy about their life. No one gives a second thought about them. No one writes books about them like they might write about rock stars and, and celebrities and, and influencers. And the reality is God is more impressed with that regular, faithful family who's practicing sacrificial generosity than He is with celebrities and, and people who are rich and famous. And God has called us as his people to celebrate what he celebrates rather than what the world celebrates, right? To, to care more about regular, faithful people practicing sacrificial generosity than we care about that which is considered impressive by the world. So those are kind of two preliminary points that I wanted us to kind of consider, chew on, right? Give to please God and not the world. Celebrate what God celebrates and not what the world celebrates, and then I just wanted to take, some, take a few minutes and just kind of think about some literally like practical dollars and cents, you know, like financial questions that I think are helpful for us as Christians to think about, right? One that, that is probably the most common uh, directed to pastors is, uh, you know, should, should we tithe? Do, do we as Christians have to tithe? Tithe uh, literally means one-tenth. So, so the practice of tithing just means giving one-tenth of your income, 10% of your income to God. It comes from Leviticus chapter 27. Uh, one, of, one of the first kind of you know, instructions about tithing in the Bible, every tithe of the land, whether the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. He goes on to say literally, like, take your herds and let them pass and then just count. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. That one's God's. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And you, like hit, you, know, you tap every tenth animal and that one is given to God. 10% of your income. Now, there's also in the Old Testament all kinds of other, you know, um, laws and obligations around giving that go far north, of, probably closer to north of 20%, probably closer to 30%. Festivals, right, special occasions, different, like uh, Leviticus 1 through 7 has all these different kinds of sacrifices, burnt offerings, grain offerings, wine offerings, sin offerings, you know, all these kinds of things. Le uh, Leviticus 23, all these festivals and holidays that all involve their own uh, offerings. So most people in ancient Israel probably gave, uh, again, far more than 10% of what they, of, of their income. But the question remains, are Christians today in the New Testament or in the New Covenant, right, in the church, are we required to give 10% of our income? And the question is tricky. Lots of guys that I read and think highly of say yes, you do have to. Lots of guys that I read and think highly of say no, uh, you don't necessarily have to. I probably side more with the, with the latter. But again, the, the question, you kind of have to um, like think through the, the logistics of the question for a minute, right? Uh, the the all of the mentions of tithing, almost all of the mentions of tithing in the Bible are in the Old Testament. There's a handful in the New Testament, and they're not really like 
You know, like Jesus mentions tithing three times, and the context is never like, this is a good thing that we want you to do. It's always like, look at this wicked person. Look at this sinful person who uh, is a hypocrite, but he thinks very highly of himself because he tithes. So the Bible doesn't, the New Testament specifically doesn't take a, speak a lot about tithing, but it does talk a lot about generosity. Sacrificial, faithful, cheerful, willing, regular generosity. We've got a few verses I wanted to kind of run through. Second Timothy 6. Paul says, Do good, be rich in good works, and be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure as a good foundation for the future so that you may take hold of that which is truly life. 2 Corinthians 9, each one must give as he has decided in his own heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Verse 12, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. 1 Corinthians 16, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. So there's very little mention of give 10%. Right? If you're giving 10, then you don't need to worry about giving 11 or more because you're already giving 10. And if you're giving 9, you should feel guilty because you're not giving 10. There's little mention of that in the New Testament. Instead, what it is is principles that say give generously, give thankfully, give cheerfully, give willingly, give regularly, and give in proportion to what God has given you. So if someone asks, I'm a Christian, do I need to give 10% of my income? It kind of depends on the the answer is dependent kind of on the spirit of the question. If the question is, should I give 10%? And kind of the, the, uh, the understanding is that if the question is really, uh, what number should I give so that I can stop having to be generous from that point forward, right? So that I can keep everything that I still have and do what I want with it and no one else can ask anything of me. If that's the question, then, then yeah, the answer is no. Like, the threshold for what you need to give so that you don't need to worry about being generous beyond that is not 10%. It's, uh, it's 100%. <laughs> like, like, God wants you to be generous with all of your money, not just with 10% of your, of your money. Right? You owe, you owe God everything. And so the question is not what the, the, uh, the question is not uh, what portion of my possessions am I able to be selfish with and do what I want with? If that's the question, then the answer is none of them. But if the question is, look, I, I genuinely want to be generous. I just don't know. Like, I just want some. I want kind of a starting point of like, you know, I'm I'm genuinely want to know how much would you counsel me to give and where I should give it to. Then it seems reasonable to me, reading the Bible, that if God commanded as a law, as an obligation, people in the Old Covenant to give 10%, then that seems like a reason, right? In the New Covenant, we're not under law, we're under grace. But it seems reasonable and appropriate that us being under grace and having been uh, given grace by God would give at least as much, as, if not more, than what people gave in the Old Covenant. So I don't think we're obligated to give 10%. I just think that... Um, 10% is a good starting point for what Christians should. If you are giving 10%, great, by all means, that's a good starting point. And if you're not giving 10%, then I would strive to be giving uh, 10%. Specifically, I think um, because of the primacy of the local church and how it's intended to function in the life of the believer, I think that 10% uh, of your income given to the local church is a good, healthy, best practice to begin with. And then after that, if you're giving 10% to your local church, then that's great. Again, I, I, the, the more importantly than the question of whether you're giving 10% and whether you're giving 10% to your local church is, 
Are you leveraging all 100% of your money, the money that you bring in and the money that you already have, are you leveraging all of that to glorify God? And that could be done any number of ways, right? You could, you could give more than 10% to your local church because it might have needs that need to be met there. Or maybe it's better to give uh, that extra dollar to support a missionary. Or maybe it's better to give that extra dollar uh, to a local crisis pregnancy center. Or maybe it's better to give that next dollar to support a single mom uh, who, you know, who, who gave birth to the kid that maybe she was thinking about terminating before they were born. Or maybe it's better to spend that next dollar to hire a babysitter so that you can spend intentional time with a younger Christian and disciple them. Maybe it's good to spend that next dollar... Um, you know, to take your family away for some intentional time and rest on a vacation. Maybe it's good to spend that next dollar on buying a bigger house so that you can practice hospitality and have people over, right? The point is we're not under the law like we were in the Old Testament where they had all of these rules about give this much and give it in exactly this way. We're under grace. So we're going to start with a general principle that says I want to be generous and kind of have this like first step of I'm going to give 10% to my local church. And then we have this kind of, you know, this freedom in Christ to decide how am I going to leverage the money that God has given me to bring the most glory to God. You are free to decide provided that you are intending to use your money for the Lord. So I don't think that Christians necessarily need to tithe as a rule. I don't think that if you're tithing, you don't need to worry about giving anymore after that. And I don't think that if you're not giving 10%, you should feel crushed or guilty. But I think that 10% is a good, healthy place that if you're not giving 10%, I think you should be striving to get there. And if you are, I think you should be striving to transcend giving 10% of your, of your income. Some people say, all right, I can't afford to give 10%. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm in debt. Right? My, my, my expenses exceed my income, so I can't afford to give 10%. What should I do? Every person's different, so there's no one-size-fits-all you know, advice. But I've talked to a lot of people, and I've, I've, ne- I mean, I've never talked with anyone as poor as this widow in Luke 21. But I've talked to a lot of people that claim that they can give little or nothing, and every single person I've ever talked with, we've found some space to give something. Right? If you can't give 10%, you can give 5 If you can't give 5%, you can give 1%. If you can't give 1%, you can give $1. Right? Like every single person I've ever met, when we look at their finances, they can find space to give something, which I think is a, a good, right? If you're giving nothing, start by giving something, however small. If you're giving something, then work toward giving 10%. And then if, if and when you arrive there, celebrate God's faithfulness and his grace in your life. And if you're already giving 10%, praise God. Let's think about how you can use the other 90% to bring the most glory to God. The point is, give generously, give cheerfully, give willingly, give regularly, give in proportion to what God has given you. And then another another point of application that I think is just, um, needs to be said in America in the 21st century, which is seek counsel. Seek counsel about your finances and about how to leverage your finances for the glory of God. Making decisions with your money is not easy. There are some general principles, right, that we should aspire to implement. Be a diligent earner. Be a generous giver. Be a wise saver, right? Be a cautious spender. But how those things work out practically is not always one size fits all. There's, like, big questions, 
that we don't, you know, should I take this job? Or should I quit it and pursue a different career? Right? Why or why not? Am I giving enough? Why or why not? If not, what changes should I make so that I can become more generous? How can I leverage the money that I have and the income that I have to glorify God as much as possible? These are hard questions. And if I'm being honest, if you try to tackle them on your own, you're probably not going to answer, you're probably not going to get to the best answer. And the sad fact is that's exactly what most of us do. Right? Because of our culture and because of what it values and what it kind of considers taboo, most of us feel uncomfortable talking to other people about money. We don't want to ask them tough questions about their money, how much they have, how much they make, how much they give. We don't want them to ask us tough questions about our money. So we're all just trying to navigate these tough issues and we all feel a little bit lost and we're all unsure as to whether or not we're making the best decisions, but none of us are willing to go to anyone and have conversations about it because it's considered rude or taboo. I mentioned up top, right? But like the two, I don't think it's a coincidence that the two issues that our culture considers taboo to talk about, right? Money and, and sex are the two like issues that statistically cause the most amount of divorce, that cause the most amount of heartache and hardship in our lives. We're all embarrassed to talk about them. If you bring them up, we're uneasy. We feel exposed. Polite people, well-adjusted people would never talk to other people about them. And then we all, un- we all end up making mistakes and trying our best to learn from our mistakes instead of learning from the mistakes and the wisdom that other people have made that have gone before us. Right? Everyone in our life who's wiser, who would otherwise be in a position to speak into our life, we've kind of cut ourselves off from their counsel and their uh, advice because we've been told that it makes them or us uncomfortable. So here's the counsel. The counsel is like, Push back against that cultural ethos. Right? Don't let areas that the culture considers taboo uh, like become areas in your life where you make life-altering mistakes, right? Or where where you're, you know, where you're being defeated instead of seeing victory. So I would submit that it's not bad. In fact, it's good for you to go to someone and ask for help, right? For you to go to a trusted friend, someone, someone in your, I think, I think everyone in this church should have someone else in this church that they can go to and say, I need help. I need counsel. Here's what I'm doing. This appears to be working. This, I'm not sure if it's working. Here's what I think I could be doing better. Here's some things where I'm not sure if I'm doing well or not. Can you help me with it? Right? Here's what I make. Here's what I give. Here's where I give it to. Here's how much I save. Here's how much I spend. Good, bad. What changes would you make? What improvements would you make? These are healthy questions to ask. Healthy conversations. I've, I've done it. I've gone to people in this church, opened up the books and said, here's what I make. Here's what I give. Here's what I save. Here's what I spend. And I've invited people's counsel on it. I would submit that there should be at least one person in the church that you would be willing to sit down with and have this conversation with. That's the only way you're going to grow. If you don't do that, then you're just, com- you're just left for the entirety of your life at the mercy of your own perspective and what you hope that you can figure out on your, on your own. So those are a few uh, points of application from this text, right? Give to please the Lord and not the world. Celebrate what God celebrates and not what the world celebrates. Invite counsel from other believers. And then finally, uh, 
give generously by giving in view of what Christ has given for you. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. At the end of the day, God doesn't call us to be generous for some arbitrary reason. And God doesn't call us to be generous without Himself having first practiced generosity on our behalf. We should be generous with our money because Jesus was generous with us. Jesus gave us everything that we have. And, and, and more than that, Jesus gave us the very salvation that we possess in our souls. Jesus gave us forgiveness of sin. Jesus left His throne in heaven. Jesus was richer than anyone could ever uh, imagine. Jesus gave all of His wealth and all of His riches up. In the incarnation, Jesus left unimaginable wealth. And Jesus stepped into uh, utter poverty. He was born in a stable. He grew up in a poor family. He worked for years as a, as a carpenter. He spent years as an, a homeless itinerant preacher. Jesus died penniless. Jesus, as He was dying, had to enlist the help of other people to take care of His aging parents because He had nothing to give them, nothing to provide for them. For Jesus was buried in a grave that someone else had to pay for. And Jesus did all of that. He practiced all of that sacrificial generosity, giving of Himself into poverty, laying down His life for you so that you might become rich, so that you might receive salvation, the gift of eternal life, the gift of the Holy Spirit indwelling inside of you. Jesus gave everything that He had for you. He sacrificed everything for you. And now Jesus has called us as followers of Christ to respond by doing the same for Him. By practicing generosity for His sake and for the sake of people that He loves. Your money is not your own. It's God's. God has allowed you to steward it on His behalf. So steward it well. Use it wisely. Be generous with it. And glorify God with it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you gave up everything for us so that we could be saved from sin and death and hell. And Lord, we pray that we could respond by giving up that which we have for you. We pray that you would help us to be humble and to love you and to glorify you with our money. In Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.